Uh, today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what, all, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How, will the, wise, how the wise dies just like the fool? So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it, leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest this is also vanity. There's nothing better for a person that, that then he should eat and drink and also find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Um, well, good morning. If you're, if you're new uh, to us, we are, uh, this is our third week in uh, a book called Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, I uh, would encourage you to do that. Um, we are going to um, work through the passage that we just uh, read today. Um, let me just give you a, a quick catch-up, especially for those of you that um, this is maybe your first time um, with us. The book of Ecclesiastes is uh, not the most upbeat book in the Bible, um, so there was a lot of uh, talk of hating life in that uh, passage, and you're like, oh, great, I'm glad this is the uh, day I finally uh, chose to come to church. Someone drug me out, and we're going to talk about how much life stinks and how much work is, is futile and how much we uh, hate life. So uh, welcome to Village. It's good to have you with us this morning. Um, but really, this is a, a very, very important book. Um, it's a book because it looks straight down the barrel uh, of life unflinchingly. And uh, it's written, um, uh, it's either written by Solomon or Solomon's kind of ghostwriter. It's meant to, to be the, the wisdom of Solomon that we're looking at. Solomon at the time was king over Israel. Uh, God had granted him um, not only his wish for wisdom, um, to be able to rule over the, the uh, nation well, but he also gave him unparalleled, not only unparalleled wisdom, but unparalleled wealth, 
Um, this is the richest man on the planet at the time, uh, unparalleled power, um, and uh, he gets to rule over a, a time of unparalleled peace as well. And, and yet, this is a man who has everything, and yet, in his wisdom, wants to continually ask a very important question of why. Why? Um, for those of you that are parents, you understand this question, why? Because your kids will not stop asking it. Um, no matter, you know, why are we doing this? Hey, don't touch the stove. Why? Because it's hot. Why? B- listen, you'll get burned. Why? I mean, like, you're like, go ahead and touch it. <laughs> Never mind. Like, you know, find out the hard way. You know, uh, this is all meaningless. But, but we are intrinsically wired to ask questions, why? Why are we here Um, And some people never lose that kind of intellectual curiosity. Not just how do things work, but why? Why? And this is something that um, is is wired into us. Science, um, for for all of its incredible gifts that is given to us as humanity, science can tell you how you got here, but it can't tell you why you're here. It can't answer those deep kind of questions that niggle at us in the middle of the night. And this is what Solomon is asking. He's asking why questions. What is, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Where will I get ultimate, long-lasting satisfaction? And we're going to see that he will continually use this frame that all of life is vanity. Um, or other translations will say all of life is meaningless. And that doesn't mean that there isn't meaning in parts of life. He just says, ultimately, foundationally, I cannot find any kind of, 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 of purpose to this. The, 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 the Hebrew word they use there is hevel. We've talked about that. Vanity. And it's the word for, for mist or smoke or vapor. That life is enigmatic. That you can't actually grasp onto it. There's nothing of, of lasting substance that is, that is ultimately satisfac- satisfactory. And so he pursues and he pursues. And we saw uh, in the first week, he's pursuing wisdom. Um, but he says that no matter how hard he tries, he, he'll go to the very edge of human intellect. And there are still some things that are crooked that cannot be worked out, that cannot be straightened out. There are things that are systemic within our world that we know is broken and that we collectively as human beings still can't figure out how to fix with all of our technology, with all of our progress, there are still things broken about humanity that we can't fix. And it drives him kind of crazy. Information does not equal transformation. And this is important, right? Because we as Christians, and especially in the tradition that we are in, um, uh, you know, out of, out of the Reformation, like we are, we are like information people, right? We're Bible people. What does the Bible say? What, what can we learn? What, can we, what, what kind of knowledge can we continue to grow in? But does, does that information equal transformation? There's no guarantee, right? Because I know loads of people who know the Bible inside and out. I know lots of people who know their Bible well that are not godly people. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to be anything like that person. That person doesn't look or remind me like Jesus at all. And yet intellectually, Biblical scholars, you would say. This is important, and I want us to, I want us to uh, take a long look here uh, of where we're going to be really spending probably the next year as a, as a church community, um, at least until Easter of next year. 
And I want us, because, because Ecclesiastes can be frustrating, because it continually makes you look at the hard stuff. It just continually um, feels hopeless. You have to really look for the, the hope in that, right? It, the, the book in, in and of itself doesn't contain much of that. Now, we said in the beginning, thankfully, this isn't the only book that we have of Scripture. And we, we now have the New Testament. We now live after Jesus has come, died, resurrected, ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father. So we have a, a fuller view, a fuller experience uh, with God than, than Solomon did at his time. Solomon has walked away from God. He uses his phrase under the sun. So his seeking of wisdom, his seeking of pleasure, his seeking of all these things is what he says under the sun. That, there's a phrase that really helps us understand. It's from his perspective, an earthly perspective. It's a life describing the reality of life apart from God. So he says wisdom apart from God, information, all of these things is really uh, futile um, within that. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this book of Ecclesiastes, which is a lot of bad news, to be honest with you, um, and, and this, uh, this guy Solomon. But I want us to constantly be thinking, what is, what's the antithesis to this? And the, the, the opposite of Solomon that we want to look to, as we see the problems of Solomon get resolved in the person of Jesus. Um, I think if Ecclesiastes is his kind of, you know, take on the world, we want to look to what then does Jesus say? How do, how do you live a life wisely? How do you live a life that's full of meaning? How do you do those things? And we, we, we'll scratch the surface. We get glimpses. We get foreshadowings in Ecclesiastes. Um, but what we want to do after Ecclesiastes, the next major series we'll do, is probably through the Sermon on the Mount. Because it then will, Jesus unpacks these things. Now that you know how terrible life is without me, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? What does it actually look like to, to, uh, to live a life to the full? How do we actually get satisfaction and meaning? And so this section, uh, this book of Ecclesiastes, is going to really bring us to the reality of life without God. Um, and we'll be reminded, as we always will, of the, the hope and the light of the gospel through this. Uh, but I'm, we're, we're just finishing chapter two, and I can't wait to teach the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, man, we still have, like, how many chapters of Ecclesiastes to get through? So if you feel like, if you feel like this, is, uh, this is tough going, know that this is part one, essentially, of what will be uh, the rest of our time, probably through next Easter, I'm guessing. But like Solomon, it's important that we don't stop asking the hard questions, and maybe you're here this morning, you're like, listen, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, um, I got all kinds of questions about this, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't add up. Welcome to the club. Like, you're welcome here. Solomon says, get in line. I've got my questions first. Um, but like Solomon, don't stop asking those hard questions. Push in. Don't walk away thinking there are no answers to be found here. Do what Solomon does and exhaust your resources to find these answers. He looks at morality even, and he says, maybe if I know what is right and what's wrong, and he says, that just adds to my vexation. It just adds to my sorrow. This is foreshadowing of the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. If we only know what God knows, if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if we have this understanding of morality as God does, we'll be like God. And how does that go? Vexation and sorrow for the rest of their lives and for the life of every human being that has come after them. 
These are our parents, our spiritual parents. And so this brings us to where we're at today, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because he's already said he's looked at this. And he uses this literary device called mirrorism, um, where he'll take two opposites. So he'll talk about wisdom and folly. Um, and, and it's this literary device that, that they would use in Hebrew, basically showing two opposites, talk about those two opposites, meaning I've looked at these two things and the whole spectrum in between. So he's like, I've exhausted everything between wisdom and folly. And um, so, but he's already said this. Remember in, in chapter one, verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And verse 17 of chapter one, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And yet here he is again in verse 12 of, of chapter two, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And you're like, what is, what is he doing? Here this searcher is looking again at something he's examined before. Now, before we think that Solomon is, is literally kind of starting to go mad here, um, is this not our experience as human beings? You ever lose your phone? You ever misplace your phone? Maybe you go to the grocery store, you're loading stuff into the, the back of, of your car in the boot or whatever, uh, you think your phone's there, you know, maybe in your purse or your bag or whatever, you get home, you're unloading the groceries, you're putting them all away, and then you're looking for your phone. And you can't find your phone anywhere. And so you look through your bag, you look through your purse, whatever it may be, um, you, you retrace your steps back out to the car, you look in the boot of your car. Maybe it fell out when I was loading the, the, the groceries in there. And you look through all the boot of the car, no, it's not there, it's not there. You go back in the house, uh, you go to your bedroom, maybe it's, maybe it's still there, but the charger's just there, no phone. Checking through drawers, you're checking, you're trying to look all through the house, and then you're like, hmm, I'm gonna go check the boot of the car again. And that's what you do, right? Now, you've already looked once. You know it's not there, but, but that's where it should be. In your mind, that's the logical place that it ought to be. That's the last place that you remember having it. And so you look, and sure enough, it's, it's still not there. Get in the car, drive to the store, go inside, ask the manager, the lady at the till, whoever was working there. You check your, 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 your steps through the, through the uh, store, no phone, go back out to the parking lot. What do you do? You look in that boot again. You're like, why am I? But you just, we just can't help ourselves. This is where the phone ought to be. This is where it should be. And we just keep coming back to the same place. Why? Because that's where we think it ought to be. Look for my keys. Lose your keys. I'll look in that. I have a leather satchel that I carry around. My keys aren't in there. You know how many times I'll check that leather satchel again? I'm not kidding. Like at least two or three more times. Maybe it's in the zipper. Maybe it's in a pocket. Maybe it's under the something. It's not in there. And yet I will continue to look. This is our experience. We go back to the place that we think things ought to be. And this is what he's doing. His reason um, for reconsidering uh, wisdom is to make sure that life is considered from every conceivable angle. That no stone is left unturned. Wisdom is where things, I should be able to work this out. He's figured this out already, right? And yet his conclusion is that Whoever comes after me, for what can a man do who comes after the king? That's him. Only what's already been done. Who could add to the experience? Who could add to the experiment that Solomon has conducted? He's, he rightfully says no one. 
No one has been as wise as me. God gave him a, a, a supernatural wisdom. No one is as more powerful. No one's had the resources. Do you remember what he was doing? Like he's throwing these like parties at a, at a scale, like thousands of people, tens of thousands of people at these parties. He's exhausted the sexual experience. 700 wives, 300 call girls on, on, on standby. He's like, I tried the high life, right? I went to the opera. Um, I hung out in, you know, the research libraries of universities. And then I hung out in the park at two in the morning drinking Buckfast. He's like, I've, 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 I've done the whole thing. No, he's like, what is, what is the next person after me gonna do? Nothing that I haven't already done. And yet for the first time, we start to get this little glimmer of hope in verse 13. Then I said that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's like, listen, and remember, the, the wisdom that he's talking about here is not wisdom from God. This isn't the wisdom that we, we uh, hear the apostles talking about. This is just common sense. Uh, this is earthly kind of wisdom, right? So Christians don't have any kind of like monopoly on being smart, um, right? There's plenty of people who are secular atheists that are brilliant thinkers um, out there. And, and so he's like, hey, wisdom, all things being equal, is better than folly, He's like, perhaps it's true that wisdom adds vexation and sorrow, but it is more advantageous than, than absolute foolishness, madness, and folly. And what he says here is that wisdom doesn't simply give light, it actually enables us to see. It's not just illumination, but it's vision that it provides. I think it was Martin Luther said, it's better to walk around with your eyes in your sockets than in your pockets. And I like, I like good rhymes like that because it helps me remember things. What does he mean by that? He's like the wise people have a, have a useful perception of life. They're able to see things better than the fool can. Um, their, their vision is better than the fool. A fool walks around not just in the dark, but also the darkness is inside of him. Why? Because he has no eyes to see. The inverse, the wise people have their eyes in their head. The fool, by contrast, doesn't. He's not able to see anything. It's not that it's just dark. It's that he has no vision, that he is blind. And this is what we see in the other wisdom literature in the scriptures as well, right? Proverbs 10, 1. Um, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Parents that have kids that are long enough, lived long enough, will know that to be true. Uh, someone said, as a parent, you're only as happy as your most miserable kid, Proverbs 10, 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Like a wise person at least knows how to like follow instructions and, and can build a life that will end up in a place that's better than the fool. But here's where he starts to despair again. What does he finish off with? He says, and yet that that's true, I still perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. I'm the wisest person that ever lived, and yet the same end will come to me than the idiot. We both end up in the same place. 
Verse 16, for the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, we will all have been long forgotten how the wise dies, just like the fool. Same thing that Psalm 49, 10 says, even the wise die. For all of our intellect, for all of our advancement, for all of our moving forward, we still haven't figured out how not to die. Death is the great equalizer. So whether you're Stephen Hawking or someone who never got out of P1, death is is the great equalizer. It comes for us all. And this is where he goes then in verse 17. He observes all of this. And he says, so I hated life. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity. All is a vapor. It's just smoke. It's like striving after wind. Jesus would ask the question this way. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? which is essentially what happened with Solomon, and yet he loses his soul. Greg Easterbrook, in his book, The Progress Paradox, uh, points this out. He says that even though our lives are consistently improving in material terms, so we have, as far, <clears throat> as, far as global poverty is gone, we have halved that in the last 20 years. In two decades, we have halved global poverty. Still a long ways to go. Haven't, haven't uh, still cracked that nut completely yet. But we're as, as wealthy and as well off, even globally, as we've ever been. And yet we aren't getting any happier. Actually, the evidence starts to point in the other direction. Mental health, anxiety, depression. For all of our advancement, for all of our moving forward, for all of our material wealth is still, all of those indicators are going through the roof. The more technologically advanced and connected we are, the unhappier we seem to be. And this seems to be what Solomon is realizing, that sooner or later we will realize that eventually we will breathe our last breath Eventually, we will, our heart will beat one, one last time. Uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he said this. He says, life has no meaning the moment you lose the, il- the illusion of being eternal. <laughs> Sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Life loses all meaning the minute the illusion that you're eternal, that you're not going to die, that eventually you will go to dust, you'll return to dust. He says, once you realize that, all meaning of life is lost. And not just dead, Solomon would say, but forgotten. (laughs) Forgotten. And we did this thought experiment a few weeks ago, right? Who can name your great-grandparents? Most of us. Who can name your great-grandparents? Less of us, but still some of us. Who could name your great-great-great-grandparents and no one in the room could do it? You don't even know your own family three generations back. Well, I'll go to Ancestry.com. 
and, and work it out. Alexander the Great learned this lesson from his friend um, Diogenes the hard way. He was standing in a field and he was looking at a pile of bones. And Alexander comes out and asks him what he's doing and he says this. He says, I'm searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. This is the way that Solomon is feeling. My bones end up in the same place that the fool does. The bones of the wealthy, the powerful, the wise all end up in the same place as everybody else's. And he says, because of it, I hate life. He can't escape. His wisdom at this point is working against him. He can see all too clearly now. You ever feel like that? You ever hate life? I think if we've lived long enough, been honest with ourselves, we all have these moments, right? And hopefully it's just a bad day, right? I hated Monday. Um, But sometimes we end up in these places and spaces of time where we just hate life. Robin Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Kurt Cobain, Alexander McQueen, Ernest Hemingway, Vincent Van Gogh, David Foster Wallace, Chester Bennington. What do they all have in common? They hated life. How many of us would love to have traded lives with those people? And that's just, I mean, that's just a, a... what, half a dozen people? You could go on and on and on, list with athletes, with statesmen, with actors, with models, with artists, with great thinkers. Whatever your thing is, you probably have someone that you would admire in that and go, man, I'd love to trade lives with them. And yet all of these people got to a place where life was so unbearable they took it themselves. People that we admire, the work that they've done, the insight that they've given into life. People who've made us laugh, who've brought joy to our life, can't find any in their own. And they call it quits. And it seems like Solomon's on this brink, isn't it? This bitterness is starting to set into his heart. You can hear it. It's not that he just hates his own life. He just hates life in general. There's this embitterness that's beginning to set in. And his experience isn't anything unique. It rings so true because it is. This is the experience. This is the reality of life. Eventually. Life without God. Life under the sun, as he will say. A life disconnected from any kind of meaning or purpose. He then turns from wisdom to work. Maybe I can work my way out of this kind of uh, funk, right? And it's so easy. We can be defined by our work, can't we? It's one of the first questions you ask strangers when you meet them. After the initial, hey, what's your name? You know, things like that. What do you do? What do you do for a living? And it's very easy that we can be defined by our our work, what we do for a living. But work, as Solomon will point out, is the wrong place to find your meaning in life. 
regardless of what it is. You're like, but I have a really meaningful job. I'm a doctor. I help save people's lives. What, mo- what more noble profession is that? Right? I'm like, hey, I'm a pastor. I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm saving eternal lives. Take that, doctors. Right? But even as a pastor, this cannot be the place I find meaning. It's not satisfying enough. It doesn't answer the deepest dark night soul questions that I have for me. Easy to pastor other people at times. The hardest person that I have to pastor is in my kids. It's me. How many, how many pastors have you seen completely just jack it all in and fall? Because work, our work, no matter how meaningful and how, how uh, it, it contributes to society is, is still not enough. Solomon's going to say there's two problems with work uh, here. The first thing he says is that someone else is going to profit from your hard work anyway. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? This idea that he says, who knows, isn't, well, maybe he, he, he will or won't. He, it actually means no one knows. It can't be known whether he'll be wise or a fool. Like, who knows? Yet he will be the master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, it's vapor, it's, it's fleeting. Maybe he did know. Maybe he had an inkling. We know, if you go back and read 1 Kings, we know the story and the history of what happens. Solomon, who's the world's most successful businessman, after he dies, his son Rehoboam takes over the kingdom and loses 10 twelfths of everything that Solomon had built. Solomon reigned over a period of 40 years of peace, and with a little over a year, they were at war. Rehoboam came after Solomon and was a fool and ruined everything that Solomon had worked so hard to build his whole life for. Ten twelfths of everything lost. And he says, even if they are wise, they don't even deserve it. It was my wisdom. It was my toil. Royal family. Just born into it. Hey. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you if you are into that sort of thing. I didn't watch the wedding yesterday. This is uh, the great Russian novelist, Leo, Leo Tolstoy. He has the same experience. He writes this. He says, my question, that which at age 50, I'm only six years off from that, brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man. A question, without, with, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. And it was this question. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, he says, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything in my life that my inevitable death 
will not destroy. These are the same questions that Solomon's asking. The second problem that he says with work is that work itself is toil and trouble. Verse 20, I turned about and gave up my heart to despair. He's just bitter in despair. Over all the toil, my labors, uh, uh, over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? All of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. Work itself is toil and trouble, is it not? You ever been anxious that you don't have enough work to support yourself? You ever be anxious that you have too much work that you can't get done? You ever lie awake at night thinking about your work or lack of work or, right? So a terrible feeling. You want to sleep, your body is exhausted, and your mind's like, not tonight, sucker. We're going to be thinking about stuff for the next few hours. Get comfy. I hate that feeling. Mind just spinning away, almost like it's a different thing in your body. And then your conscience is like, hey, what are you doing? Knock it off. It's time to go to sleep. You try to wrestle it back. You try to get all comfy. And the next thing you know, like your mind is spinning again. Our work. And Solomon says, if you will make your work your life, it will leave you empty. Living to work instead of working to live. Warren Schmidt learned this lesson in the 2002 film uh, about Schmidt. After retirement, um, uh, Schmidt looks back on his life as an actuary for an insurance company. Fascinating job. And he realizes he has little or nothing to show for all of his hard work. And here's what he writes to the poor needy child that he has decided to sponsor in Africa, right? A guy in America, nothing to show for my life. I'm a sponsor kid in Africa, and this is the letter he writes. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I am dead and everyone who, know, who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. <laughs> You're like, could you imagine some like, kid in Africa reading this? Go, what? This guy's having like this midlife crisis breakdown over here. Like. But it's true. Those are important questions. Okay, I die. Great. I'm going to be remembered by the people after me. But what about when they die? That's it. Maybe your great-grandkids know your name. And their kids don't. Verse 24, life can be both this vexation and enjoyment. So he says this. He says, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toll, toil. Right? He's like, this is the best it gets. Work hard and then eat and drink and find enjoyment in that work. But he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. 
For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Uh, he's, starting to, he's starting to work some things out. Life can be, in verse 24, both vexation and enjoyment. Life's a mixed bag, isn't it? It's both of those things simultaneously. Dickens, when he wrote his famous novel, and he starts it off, uh, uh, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And a reporter asked him, Dickens, which is it? It can't be both the best and the worst of times. But it can. And it is. Right? Like, you've experienced grief and sorrow deeply and yet still found laughter in those moments? Still finding joy and hope in those moments? Lives, our lives are not just a constant, steady, upward graph. There are peaks and troughs. There's valleys and mountain tops, both. Life is made up of all of these things. But he gets to the crux of it in verse 25. What makes the difference between joy and sorrow? What makes the difference between all of your toil just being vexation, you hating life, and saying it is all meaningless? This is all just smoke. And being able to enjoy your work. Being able to find joy in a meal with good friends. We, um, uh, the staff went to, where did we go? Serbia, <laughs> sorry. I'm losing track of where I'm at. Uh, to Belgrade for uh, a church planting conference, uh, part of the network we're part of. We were in Belgrade, and um, there's this restaurant. It's really cheap. They're not even on their euro yet. So for like 20 euros, you can go and sit along the river in this really nice restaurant, um, and they will just keep bringing you food until you tell them to stop. And even then, it's a struggle to get them to stop, right? So they're just bringing out all these like different small plates from around the world. Here's some sushi. Here's fried calamari. Here's like barbecue pork ribs. Here's like all of these things. And you're like, this is amazing. You're sitting here with like close friends, beautiful view. The sun's going down, setting over the river. And you're just eating amazingly good food in the midst of that. And it just kept coming and it just kept coming. And we're like, hey, you want to slow the pace down a little bit? And uh, you know that's a lot of food if I'm telling them to slow down. And so they brought out a salad, and I was like, now's the salad after all of this. Like, but it was a good salad. It was like a little palate cleanser. And, uh, and then finally we got to the point where we're like, listen, we're done. We're, we're finished. And she's like, no, you're not. And like took all our plates and left. And apparently you don't finish until you've had steak. So then they brought out steak. And I'm like, dessert steak. Okay, I've never had dessert steak before. Um, but we're doing that now. And it's just this perfect kind of moment of like, you can enjoy these things knowing that they're from the, from the, from, from, from the Lord. Um, you can know that this isn't, isn't going to satisfy me. Because even after all of that, like at one point, I literally was leaning on the bridge thinking I'm going to throw up on the way home. I'm like, I've, I've finally figured out how much is too much. <laughs> but the next day, I was hungry again. And I've had to eat since then. It didn't fully satisfy me. And, it, and, and it's also this metaphor of like um, good things because they were good. They were really good. But the more you got them, if, 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 if that doesn't stop and they're like, no, you will continue to eat until you puke, those things then become the things that you hate. What seems like heaven in the end 
becomes like hell. More steak, more steak, more steak. I love steak, but I wasn't going to eat any more of that. So what's the difference between these things? What's the difference between joy and sorrow? What's the difference between seeing things as good things, but not fully satisfying things? He says in verse 25, who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from God? And that's what makes the difference. Paul would say it to Timothy this way in 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5. For everything created by God is good. That's good news. Everything that God creates is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So there are some things that are good, and they're intrinsically good because God made them. And if we'll receive them the right way, if we'll receive them with hearts of gratitude as if they're from the Lord and understand the perspective in which we're receiving them, they're good things. But you cut that part out and those good things become bad things really quickly. We find out how to take good things and we pervert them into ways that actually don't bring us into a life of flourishing. They bring us into a life of despair. This idea of eating and drinking that he even talks about, right? He's already, he's already talked about in chapter two looking to wine to try to cheer his heart. And so wine is a very good thing. The Lord made it. It's good. It can be received as that. In the Old Testament, when there was an abundance of wine, it was a sign of God's blessing on his people. But whenever they were in captivity or whenever they had been exiled, their vineyards were cut down and taken away from them. And so this idea of wine, even that we will taste this morning, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, uh, can be a good thing. It can be enjoyed over a great meal with family and friends. But if you turn to that very same thing, and that's the thing that you're trying to use to drown out your problems, those are the things that you need now to make you happy. Not the giver of the good things, but the thing itself. Those things become addictions in our life. They become masters and not gifts. We could talk, uh, you could apply that same thinking to sexuality. You could apply that to your money. You could apply that to your power and, and relationships, your employment. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. How we do life under the sun, disconnected and apart from God, Solomon says you're, you're gonna struggle to find any lasting ultimate enjoyment. Short-term enjoyment, absolutely. Like I'm not here trying to tell you that like, like sin, which is like life apart from God, isn't a good time. It is. It's enjoyable. It's why we want to keep doing it. <laughs> it's just that it's fleeting. It's like smoke. It's there for a minute and then it's gone. And then you have to have, uh, uh, there's this idea called the law of diminishing returns that they use in addiction language, right? You start off with a certain amount of drug and it brings this amazing high. But after a while, that drug, that same amount doesn't bring the same amount of high. Your body adjusts, it gets used to it, it adapts. Now you need more drugs, you need larger amounts. You need more powerful to bring the same amount of high. It's the law of diminishing returns. And this is life apart from God. And so Paul will encourage the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's pretty inclusive. Anything you do at all, do those things all to the glory of God. This start, starts to make sense, right? You're like, how do I mow, like, mow my lawn to the glory of God? How do I do these things that just seem so, 
boring or insignificant. How do I do those things to the glory of God? It's because we don't do them the way that Solomon did them under the sun. This is meaningless. It doesn't matter. Even the act of cultivating a garden, does that not bring imagery back to you in some kind of way? (laughs) It should. It should take you right back to Genesis, right what we were created to do, cultivating a garden, bringing order out of chaos. All of these things done in the right mindset with our our, uh, rightly ordered affections towards God actually is what fills these things with meaning and purpose. It's what allows us to have joy in them. Work in and of itself is not a result of the, of, of the fall, right? We were given work to do before we rebelled against God in the garden. Work in and itself is not toil and trouble. The toil and trouble that gets added into our work is a result of our rebellion against God. Right? That's what God actually tells him. Now you're going to have to cultivate that garden, but it's going to push against you. There will be weeds. There will be snares. There will be thickets. And we all, now we're not farmers anymore. Maybe some of you are. I don't know. But I, I have weeds and thickets in, in our lives and in the work that I'm trying to do. And so the way that we find pleasure in our work or whatever we do is to work unto the Lord and not as unto ourselves. This isn't just a temporary kind of means in my life, but we have a bigger picture. We've lifted our eyes to a better gaze. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not that God's a taskmaster, work for me, do this for me. It's for your own joy. It's for your own pleasure as well. Because apart from him, all of your work becomes fleeting and meaningless in the end. And then our last verse as we close. In verse 26, notice how he describes, uh, notice how, how people who please God are described in this verse. For to the one who pleases him, that's God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy But to the sinner, that's the person that's rejected God. He was given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He's starting to figure out how this all works together. How are the people who are pleasing God described? As ones who are given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Those things are given to us from God. Imagine I gave... um, Imagine I gave you all a tin of peaches. You'd be excited about that, I know. I actually like tin peaches. I think they're really good. Really good. But so I gave you tin peaches, right? And this is like, oh, great. This is an amazing gift. Um, it tastes great. You know, five a day. Never mind the syrupy sugar that it's in or whatever. Like, you know, it's fruit. It counts. Right? You'd be like, great. This is a great gift. Um, but I only gave half of you a can opener. This is, this is the experience. We've all been given life. We've all been given work and yet can't access it without God also giving you the can opener. And it's the can opener that he gives to those who love and follow him. It allows us to actually open these things up that, that remain locked away from Solomon. It's how you then get in to taste 
and to see. Otherwise, our life is just this act of consumerism. It's just gathering a bunch of stuff that eventually goes to someone else. And those someone else's that he says are actually those that are followers of, of Jesus. You can't take your stuff with you is what he's saying. You can't take it with you. And the stuff that you leave behind, eventually this stuff gets brought into the new kingdom. You see this in Revelation where the treasures of the earth are brought in to the new, the new Jerusalem. A lot of imagery there. We don't have time to unpack all that. The only way out of this hated life that he describes is to find wisdom that comes from above the sun. He's describing life under the sun, the reality of life disconnected from God. So Colossians, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 3, Paul will write this. If you then have been raised with Christ, those of us that are followers of Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not the things under the sun, the things above that. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the task of us. This is how you become different from Solomon. We set our mind and it's connected to Christ. Notice that, it's, it's that we are given knowledge and wisdom, it says here. What does he mean by that? It's more than just you're, you're, you have you know, smart ways to live. This is Colossians 2. He is, uh, Paul is encouraging the believers that their hearts would be uh, encouraged, knit together in love. And he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, understanding and knowledge, these very th- the same things, which is Christ. It's, it's Jesus himself that is our wisdom and our knowledge. In whom all hidden, in, 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 in Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is exactly what he says. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. What he has given us isn't just wisdom and knowledge. He has given you Christ, who is wisdom and knowledge, in whom all treasures are hidden. He says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's making the same argument that Solomon is. Just from the positive perspective instead of the miserable, hating life, negative perspective. They're both seeing the same things from different perspectives. This word hidden in Christ, it doesn't mean concealed. It means protected. That our lives are protected in Christ. The the Greek word for hidden is the word krypto. It's the same word that we use for encryption. Your lives are encrypted in Christ. So this idea that life ends in death and there's nothing left, that all of what you leave is just gone, isn't actually true for those that are in Christ. It's just true for those that are under the sun. S-U-N. It's not true for those of us that are in the Son, S-O-N, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so our encouragement this morning, are you afraid of death? We're a young church. John mentioned it already. We don't think a lot about death. Solomon actually say it's actually better 
I think in chapter 9, to go to a funeral than it is to a party. You're like, this guy's a real great guy to hang out with. But, but his point is, is when you go to a funeral, you're faced with these questions. You're faced with your mortality. No one thinks about that at a party. And our church is more party these days. Praise God. Baby dedications, two marriages coming up in the next few weeks. Like, it's incredible. We, we, we haven't had a funeral yet. Yet. Do you hate life? You don't have to be, you don't have to be midlife crisis stage to hate life. That list of people I read, a lot of those people were in their 20s. Do you worry? Are you anxious? Is this just the vanity of existence? You have to look above the sun. We look to our life hidden in Christ. It is then that you're able to eat and drink with enjoyment, which is what we're going to do right now. We're going to come, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, uh, we're going to stand in a minute, we're going to sing in response of our worship to him, and we're going to come at the end of these aisles to tables where there is bread representing the body of Christ broken for you. We're going to dip that in wine, his blood shed for you. It's this meal that we get to eat and then drink that's this metaphor for the rest of our lives with enjoyment, with peace, that you can bring all of that anxiety, that you can bring all of that hatred of life to Jesus and find in this meal his body and blood broken for you the deep satisfaction. The worry uh, of death is erased because there is, oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus has defeated that through the, through the cross and his resurrection. Let's come. For those of you that um, are exploring faith, you're like, I'm not a Christian, we'd ask you not to come and, and take the bread and wine. But it, the bread and wine is available to you through Jesus. We receive Christ first. We are brought into Christ and then are able to come to the table and be reminded. Because this is what this is. It's a reminder of his, his death, his body broken, his blood shed for you. And so for those of us that that's not a reminder for, we leave this aside. But it's available to you. All of these promises that we've talked about in Christ today are available for anyone today that would avail of those things. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Um, We confess that, I confess that all of these emotions, all of these perspectives that Solomon has, uh, I've had. I, I still do have at times. And so, Father, help us to gain proper perspective again. Help us to lift our eyes above uh, earthly things. May we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we find all of what we are searching for in him. Father, would you, Holy Spirit, would you help us believe that that is true today? We sung it this morning. We believe, but help our unbelief. Help us know that Jesus is better. Drive that deep into our hearts and our souls, that we would practice the way of Jesus even this week. And Father, for those of, of, in the room that don't know you, may today be the day that they find you. May today be the day that they realize all of what they've been searching for is found in Jesus.
Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in this time. Amen. Let's stand and sing and come to the table.